Welcome to the Eat Local Center New York podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Tringale. Today is the day, people. This is part two of the conversation I had with Eamon Lee, and it's so exciting. If you're interested in where he got started, what kitchens he got started working in here in Syracuse, the amazing experiences that he had in New York City cooking, and then coming back and learning about his progression through the culinary world here in Syracuse. Today is the day. Such a fun conversation. I love, love, love knowing about the history of people, where they got started, and how they worked up to the level that they got. And so today's episode, today's conversation is all about that. If you haven't already, do me a huge favor, hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, let us know what you think of the Eat Local CMY podcast, and don't forget, head over to eatlocalcmy.com to pick up your Eat Local CNY card. It's $20, but it's a $5 reusable coupon at over 90 locally owned restaurants. Without further ado, here is part two of my conversation with Eamon Lee. You know, I had Kyle from Kasai on a couple weeks ago. And uh, since I think I've eaten there like a dozen times, and that was just two weeks ago. And <laughs> actually, I just posted yesterday. I went there for lunch again. It was my third time this past week. <laughs> I ate there two days ago. <laughs> yeah. There's something about knowing that they are open until 2, 3 in the morning on sure. weekends that just appeals to me. Sure. I, like, I was over at a friend's house last night. I'm like, dude, tomorrow, 2 a.m., let's go. We're going to Kasai. <laughs> you know, just because... You can. It's, yeah. Because exactly. you can. Right. What's it going to be? Boloides? Right. Kasai. Yeah. Going with Kasai. <laughs> yeah. And, and ramen by nature, and, and, and Kyle's a good friend. And um, I actually, uh, it, that food and cuisine by nature is absolutely effing delicious. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, Kyle's done a wonderful job of actually taking and identifying the opportunity and um, placing his passion on something so succinct. And then bringing it to life, um, he, 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 uh, I hope he continues to stay busy and the community continues to support him. Yeah. Um, I don't. Uh, uh, he's uh, he's busy. I was there the other day. It seems like anytime I want to have a thoughtful or passion laden meal, I usually we will usually pick that place to go. Yeah. Because it just makes organic sense to talk um, feverishly about food over delicious food. Yeah, for sure. Um, Kyle does a great job. He, yeah, they really do. He does. And to think that they're making so much in-house from scratch. Sure. Doing things the hard way, too. Yeah. Not yeah. buying it, putting in these crazy long hours. Yep. You know, I mean, in a world where it's, let's go try and make a bunch of money and not have to work as, you know, as hard as other professions. Absolutely. Um, I think he recognizes that as, as well, it, it begs, what Kyle's doing, I believe, and uh, in a large way, a number of other restaurants are doing as well, is to try to take a look at the traditional restaurant that maybe be like the 100-seat or 150-seat restaurant mm-hmm. and recognizing that with all of the different disruptions that are happening in our business this day, whether it be wage uh, or um, uh, the cost of doing business, insurance, uh, ingredient price pressure, and everything else, if you look at the economic model moving forward for the next 20 years, the restaurant that's going to succeed and stay profitable is probably going to be a lot smaller than what we're used to seeing, yes. or it's going to be massive. Yeah. So there's definitely going to be a scale difference there Mm -hmm. and so you're either going to be like the gigantic restaurant that has 200 seats is doing 500 people a day Mm -hmm. or you're going to be you know like a kyle 
or somebody else. Now, Kyle's actually, I would say, is on the larger side of, yeah. that, of the smaller scale, but something like you see Sweet Praxis mm-hmm. or Oh My Darling or any of these places, The Stoop, you know, these yeah. aren't big restaurants. No, not at all. Um, but they're vibrant. They, there are the traditional day part of lunch and dinner yeah. is all blown up. You can go there all times of day and eat. Right. And um, you need to be adaptive and understanding. Go walking in and being vegan and gluten free and all these other things can't be a problem. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 you, a menu today that used to be like a good menu had veal, beef, chicken, <laughs> cut to like a couple of fish items and a pasta yeah. for a traditional continental menu. Mm-hmm. Now you should have something that is just by nature, yeah. gluten-free, vegan, <laughs> sustainable, yada, yada. Now that menu structure is a lot different. Without a doubt. But I, I'm surprised by how people are still resistant to that. It's, oh it's my like, God. You're surprised yeah. that a vegan gluten-free person walked into your restaurant. Yeah. I don't think that's the gluten-free vegan <laughs> fault. <laughs> I think it's our fault. It's funny. The re- I have a client who uh, Dolce Vita, you know, cause part of eat local CMY is I do the, I've done the marketing social media for seven restaurants for the last three years, four years now. And Dolce Vita just launched a whole keto menu, lunch and dinner. And it's amazing. The people that show up, thank you so much. And, you know, I talk to other restaurant owners because, you know, so everything we do for restaurants is free for Eat Local CMY. Awesome. 100% of everything's oh, free. That's amazing. That's the whole point is to help, right, local restaurant owners. Good for you. So I often find myself sharing similar ideas I've had for one with the other. Sure. And I, I, for, I stopped doing it after about three weeks because I talked to about eight different restaurants and I was saying, just offer a few keto. Don't change. Don't become this. Just offer a few keto friendly. Don't just say they can substitute. And that's what I get every time. Well, so they can just substitute. I don't need to do that. And it's amazing talking to Eric actually last week. It's amazing. The process, the thought of being inclusive for everyone and proactively. So yes, not reactively. Yeah. Uh, yes. And I need to ask this question though. Oh, okay. Before coming from who you are and your appreciation for food and where it's sourced and everything like that in a restaurant, can you be inclusive of different dietary restrictions and different people and how they eat vegan and gluten-free and all that, and still be true to, um, the art form of or your expression of the art form of food? Absolutely. You can. No question about it. Okay. It's called a vegetable. (laughs) <laughs> and, 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 and so the veg, the funny thing is, is so let's go back to the early nineties. Mm-hmm. If a vegetarian walked into the restaurant, the, the running joke was that we would give them and in, and every vegetarian in the age of 40 to an older knows this, you would get uh, pasta primavera, which jokingly <laughs> was referred to as vegetable wonderama in the kitchen. The, sh- the cooks would look at their mise en place and they would look around and see what, what didn't have any animal products in it. <laughs> they would throw it into a 10-inch saute pan and then toss it with fettuccine that was pre-cooked. Yeah. Boom, vegetarian happy. And it dietitian was... Dietitian happy as well because my fiance is a dietitian. And when we first started dating, that's what I would make. Just, <laughs> sure. Because I had to do a vegetable. Yeah, yeah, and you have to. So <laughs> to me, vegetables still re- remain largely gluten-free, yeah, right? right? And sustainable and all these other things. <laughs> it's funny, though, as, as a country, and I look at this, I challenge our own country as uh, not, this is another sort of kick, and I think this is going to be part of our second tier of uh, growing up culinarily as a country, mm-hmm. is 
um, in the embracing and celebrating of the vegetables that we're able to grow within our own communities, uh, celebrating our terroir once again, and understanding Mm -hmm. that, you know, uh, very much what um, Dan Barber talks about in the third plate, Mm -hmm. uh, the third plate being this next plate of the future that we could sustainably feed each other, where it's not two-thirds meat mm-hmm. and then a starch and vegetable that the proportions come drastically change to reflect mm-hmm. more of a sustainable environment within which this food can be produced yeah. and that we can feed each other. All of that, mm-hmm. if you look at those foods, they all happen to check these specialized dietary needs or desires, mm-hmm. whether they are need or desire. Um, that's not ours as cooks to decide. We need to understand what it's gonna, what we can feed people, not just today, but what we can feed them in 20 years, yeah. and set our systems up to do that. All of those things, if we look at it, can be done well. Once we decide what the outline of that food looks like, then we can hone our craft to suit. Yeah. And so you see where it takes a little bit of humility. I've talked to cooks where they're like, oh man, these, these stupid vegetarians and gluten-frees, and you know, I told them it couldn't be gluten-free, and then they were like, oh fine, I'll have the pasta. I mean, it's like I, I understand your frustrations because you like to cook what you like to cook, and that's fine. But at what point do we start to look, step back from the situation and ask ourselves, aren't we supposed to be feeding people? Mm-hmm. Isn't that truly the, really the touchstone of our business? Or do you want to make a pretty plate of food? Hmm. Because one does not necessarily have a lot to do with the other. Yeah. You can feed people and make a pretty plate of food doing it Mm -hmm. but if you aren't feeding people first Mm -hmm. then i challenge your anger or frustration with not finding success does that make sense and so it's a you get into like influences danny meyer is a big influence of mine and his notion of this business is hospitality based Everybody, he always, in setting the table, wonderful book that if you're in this business, I, like, I think it should be standard reading. Right. Don't go to culinary school, but you still need to read that book. <laughs> um, everybody is born with the same needs, literally born with the same needs. They need love. They need food. They need attention, right? right? Yeah. And Danny Meyer says when you walk into one of his restaurants, those needs are identified, paramount, and, hmm. uh, and you need to start addressing them as a business, as a hospitality person. Hmm. And you think about it, it's the same thing. Hospitality business has the same root as a hospital. Yes. And, and so we really need to challenge ourselves and look at what is it that we're trying to do. And I've, you know, all of the, if we understand what keto is mm-hmm. and we, and instead of fighting it, embrace what it is and realize that the person that we want to feed, this is how, because if we don't feed them what they want, we're not feeding them. Right. And if yeah. we don't hmm. feed a gluten-free person, something that doesn't have gluten in it, we're not feeding them. Right. We're poisoning them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do no harm, right? So it, it, then challenge yourself. is like, if that's what you're doing, why are you fighting this? Why, are, why do you feel like you're swimming uphill? Ask yourself what it is that you're truly doing here. If you're feeding people, you sh- I don't believe that you would necessarily struggle with this yeah. at all. It, it, mm. Because feeding people, the first step is understanding who you're <laughs> feeding, not what I want to cook. Yeah. And... You know what? In some markets, like New York City, mm-hmm. Philadelphia, wherever, Chicago, L.A., you can cook what you want to cook. There's, the market's big enough that enough people might be there, a tiny little sliver of mm-hmm. pie. They'd be like, I am, I've already had a big-ass lunch, and if I didn't eat for the rest of the day, I'd be fine and live and wake yeah. up tomorrow morning. But I want to go be entertained. I want to have my sales filled, and I want to be inspired yeah. through food. Yeah. 
awesome, man. Mm. That's fantastic. You know, it's my, my view of restaurants and chefs is quickly changing. And honestly, just from sitting down across from uh, people in the industry, you know, I, I've always viewed cooking as an art form and you can cultivate it. Sure. But you also either have it or you don't to a certain degree. Mm. And, and Cody's really changed that and, and arguing with me that he's a craftsman. He's not an artist. And you and Eric are kind of changing that for me. I, I would view it as even if Kyle decided to open up an Italian American restaurant one day, which I'm Italian American, but I pray to God he never opens an Italian American <laughs> restaurant. Uh, although I'm sure he would, you know, knock it out of the park. If he ever did, I would probably never go to him for chicken parm. Probably not. Although I'm sure he would make a pretty. I'm sure it would be amazing. Chicken parm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I would never go there. I would choose pick and choose a restaurant based on what I know or think that they do well. Well, yeah, for sure. And I think that's that kind of view is changing a little bit to where it's you go to a place for that experience, for that entertainment, for that hospitality. Oh, for sure. And assuming or hoping that whatever you need will be taken care of when you go in there. And that you're in the hands of a good craftsperson too. Yeah. So um, I, I, Cody's uh, view as a craftsperson, I agree with that. And I also agree with cooking is a craft. Mm -hmm. So if we look at, let's just lay it against, um, that's a great analogy. So let's look at it as woodworking. Mm -hmm. um, can you hammer a board, you know, nail it one board to another. Okay, that's fine. But you know, you get into the understanding wood and you know, but you're still, taking wood and you're turning it into something useful. Yeah. Um, that's woodworking. Mm -hmm. But then you get into like a Pennsylvania high boy, or you get into um, some Gustav Stickley stuff or some of Harvey mm -hmm. Ellis's pieces. Now, yes. Are they still nailing boards to each other? Yes, they are. <laughs> but do, are they masters of their craft and have they elevated this craft to an art form? Absolutely. Mm. Um, it's not like modern art yeah. where if the right person's punching a paint laden fist into a canvas <laughs> and calling it art, Okay, that's subjective, sure. But I think when you, if you look at craft, yes, I think you need to master craft before it can be elevated or even seen as art yeah. in our world. Um, mm. But again, I think if we still go back to, are we feeding people or not? And if we are feeding people, um, that to me requires a couple of things. Number one, we're preparing, we're taking natural ingredients and we're preparing them in a healthy sense. We're not making people sick because you're making somebody sick, you're not feeding them. Right. And do we understand who mm. we're feeding? Yeah. And I think the third part of that, which is something that we have as a luxury, um, but we're starting to recognize today is, are we feeding um, people food where we are, when we are? Mm -hmm. So in other words, this is central New York. And I challenge people too, uh, especially finer dining restaurants or people that are supposed to be enlightened. Um, if I can't look at your menu and tell, and, and tell what season it is, at least I, I think your food is probably a little dis connected hmm. if that's kind of your jam yeah you know listen uh if, if a ramen ya <laughs> is always got the same thing i'm fine with that because you know that's fine yeah but if i go to a place that's that you know purports to be seasonal so forth and so on and i don't see a mushroom asparagus chive uh or any sort of spring ingredient and it's it's may i i that's you're off there's a restaurant in um uh, cincinnati and i would go down there a few times a year to visit family mm-hmm and it was this restaurant that said they were seasonal. Every time you would go in and sit down, hey, our menu's probably different since the last time you were here because we go with the seasons and, you know, so you should expect to see this, this, and this, and this. And every time, I had gone down like five times in one year, obviously different times of the year. 
same restaurant, same spiel, same menu. (laughs) And it's, or you see asparagus as a vegetable, as the same vegetable all 12 months of the year. And I get it from an operational standpoint, it's easy to do. And I'm not, you know, you start getting into this argument of like, well, you know, all right, aren't you working a little hard there? Or, Mm -hmm. yeah, it depends on that. I think the environment, the price that you're charging for food and um, what is the brand expectation? Right. And that's, I think people are more cognizant of that these days. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, I wanted to spend some time talking about who you are. Okay. You go from Syracuse to uh, granted you're in Vermont and things like that, but you go to New York and you spend some time in some pretty influential places down there. Yeah. And then come back. Yeah. Tell me, you know, what, what shaped, what changed about your perspective, uh, and how you prepare food or how you cook or even ingredients from your trip down to New York City or your time in New York City to them back here? Okay. Um, so it was after it was, I was 25 years old, and I realized at that time in my life that if I didn't go down to New York City or a major market to work for some famous chefs or, you know, again, at that time, you didn't even have smartphones. Yeah. The internet was still, <laughs> you know, dodgy at best. And um, we had the Food Network. That was really our the pinnacle of our awareness of mm-hmm. the culinary world. That and food magazines. Yeah, we still had to read stuff and buy things <laughs> and read them. And um, and um, there were no Facebook videos. No, like there that. was nothing. No, yeah. there was nothing like that at all. Right. And so the only influence. Luckily, I was always. It was a great publication uh, that came out. It was called Art Culinaire. And it was a four time a year publication, but it was always at the tip of the spear as far as chefs and food were concerned. And I still get it to this day. And I started getting it in the late 80s. Hmm. There's a gazillion issues. But it's actually served to be a uh, long running discourse on uh, the state of affairs culinary wise in this United States and the world. Um, and it's pretty cool. So we learned a lot of stuff and we would open these issues and we would just lust after them Hmm. as cooks. And I would bring it into the restaurant and we would all just stop what we're doing and go out back and smoke cigarettes and just flip the page. It's a large format magazine Hmm. and we would see it and there was no advertisements. It was just pictures and chefs. And we were like, Oh, who's that guy? And they would have a biography. I'm like, I'm going to go work for that guy. And it was Charlie Palmer Hmm. with Oriole. And, um, and then it was David Burke. Um, at Park Avenue Cafe at the time. And these were guys that were cooking what they called American food. And ironically, at the time, Charlie Palmer had just published American, I think it was American Cuisine or American Food, um, the book. And um, I went down and I trailed. At that time, and you still can to a degree, you can actually show up or contact a restaurant and say, hi, my name is so-and-so, and I want to work for free in your restaurant. In exchange for your free labor, you would get exposure to the kitchen culture and their ways. Yeah. Uh, it was almost a free education if you were willing to put forth the effort. Hmm. And so I trailed at Oriole, and I trailed with the ex- written, ex- um, written expectation that I wanted to get a job there. Hmm. And um, luckily, uh, I was able to get a job there. And um, when I got in there, it was not what I expected, number one. It was a very, very fast-paced, very, very intense restaurant, cooking very, very intense food. Um, and it was not as... Uh, it was not as coddling maybe as a restaurant would be up in central New York where things are just a little <laughs> slower and a little nicer. It, it was, it was cold blooded and I don't mean cold blooded from a, in a bad way, but it was one of those kitchens where if you messed up, there was almost corporate penal punishment to, 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 to suffer. Yeah. And it's something, if you looked at that kitchen now, it would be in the news. Hmm. Um, but back then that was SOP. Yeah. So, um, after I got used to that, though, I started to understand what Charlie was doing with his food. 
And Charlie, you know, he was one of the first really to recognize and really back up for a second. Charlie Palmer and David Burke both worked for Larry Forgione at the River Cafe. If you really trace back the roots of American cuisine, Larry Forgione is often referred to as a godfather of American cuisine. And what he had done is he started to realize that, you know, uh, free range chicken and all this stuff, these terms came from Larry Forgione's world and his relationships with purveyors. And they started to realize, what about this food that we have right here? Why do we have to import all this crap? What about the chickens that are raised up in the Hudson Valley? What about the guy, Egg Farm Dairy, that's making these great cheeses? Um, and why don't we talk to him? And Charlie Palmer said, you know what, better yet, why don't I partner with these guys? So he bought in a steak at Egg Farm Dairy, and he bought in um, you know, the florist and everything else. Wow. And he started to really celebrate and resonate all of these local foods. When I cooked those things and I saw the menu and I saw the ingredients come in, and you could see the purveyors come in one after the other downstairs— that that leaves a tremendous impression when all I was used to seeing was food just getting rolled off the back of a truck. Yeah, um, It was hmm. cool. And then he would put that on the menu. And he had one of those menus that was very succinct even for the time. Very, very, lots of negative space, hmm. very little verbiage. And it would say like egg farm, dairy, cheese, risotto with so-and-so Swiss chard and uh, the name of the cheese, not just parm, but he would point out it would be like a piave or something like that. And, um, and the herbs and everything was listed as the ingredients. It wasn't risotto, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And all of these ingredients were celebrated and mm. the locales were celebrated. And that had a huge impression. Same thing over at David Burke. David Burke did something differently though. And he had a very playfulness to his approach to food. And I thought it was cool because his cuisine was serious and his cooking techniques were serious. And he had some legitimate badass chefs in there, mm. but he, he, uh, the playfulness that you would come to see like Thomas Keller express in the French laundry with yeah. his tongue in cheek names for dishes. David Burke was doing that crap in the early nineties. Hmm. And, and he had this really sort of LSD sort of inspired view of food. And that really turned things on its head, but it kept the food serious, but not overly serious where people were choking on it when they were swallowing it Yeah, because they were so uptight in the dining room. Right. And to me, that was a perfect blend of guys to work for. And it was only for one year by design. I yeah. only went to New York for cook for one year. Okay. And, um, I, I, full disclosure, I meant to go work for an Oriole for a whole year after six months, I was completely fried on the place and made mm-hmm. a move to Park Avenue cafe because I had had it. Um, and, uh, actually I went to Park Avenue cafe, wound up working for P- Richard Leach and pastry because they didn't have a job on hotline. Wow. And Richard Leach came in and he was a, a tremendously influential uh, pastry chef. But he didn't go to Culinary Institute of America for pastry. He went there for savory. Is that where you kind of developed your? Um, uh, is that where you kind of got the itch for good bread, great bread? Uh, or is that in you before there? I don't know where I got the itch for good bread. I, honestly, I really can't even tell you where that came from. Richard Leach was—he um, did do bread, but it wasn't like the stuff that I've been goofing around okay. with now. Yeah. Uh, there was bread that I had that was wonderful in uh, in New York. Um, it's wonderful bread. Um, but it was more Richard's pastry influences were really more of, um, how to approach pastry from a savory standpoint. He did not like traditionally trained pastry chefs. As a matter Mm. of fact, he bored him and he wound up canning the entire staff when he took the position. Wow. Yeah. That's why the sous chef came into me in a panic and said, I know you're trailing for a savory position, but do you want to work pastry? Because Richard just fired everybody in the department. Wow. And they did 250 desserts every night. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, so he was in a pinch. So I said, for that guy? Absolutely. <laughs> he was one of the guys you saw on TV. So. Yeah. Anyway, it was, it was a hot year, and it completely 
changed and forged how I would cook moving forward um, unapologetically and unquestionably. What was the first, when you get back to the area here, what's the first restaurant you're at? <laughs> so... 238 Bistro. Yeah, okay. Because nobody wanted to hire me when I got back from New York City. Really? No, man. Because like, there weren't any chef jobs available. And I don't think anybody was really high on the thought of me coming in. Just, you know, a ball of flames coming out of New York City. Mm-hmm. Where not everybody had the luxury to drop everything. Yeah. Sell out. Go, go upside down on their car payments just to cook in New York City. Yeah. And then come back fully enlightened. And come back to the pasta primaveras of the world and vegetable wonder ramas and be like, dude, what is that? I just, I just, I've been to the mountaintop, bro. I've just <laughs> seen the light, man. Let's start cooking. Not everybody wants that ball of energy in their kitchen. What year is that? 98, 99? No, it's 96. 96. 96. So 96 and then into 97, um, I actually went without a job hmm. for a little while until Max, who owns the lemongrass, yeah. Uh, uh, he had opened 238 Bistro and he couldn't really get it off the ground. And it's that little restaurant that's now Bistro Elephant in the yeah. breezeway down there on Center Armory. And remember back in the time, mm-hmm. cigars were hot. Yeah. Uh, and wine was hot. But Max was cooking Thai food. Yeah. Not really the best launch pad for great wines and Wine Spectator uh, awarded wine lists mm-hmm. and cigars. Mm-hmm. So he put together this little 42 seat restaurant. He peeled off a piece of his kitchen that it was shared with the lemongrass. And we had a tiny little line and we, we said, we can service this menu. And the menu was almost exactly like the menu at Oriole, eight entree, eight appetizers, eight uh, uh, entrees, and then a handful of, of heavily influenced desserts by Richard Leach. Um, but it was very sustainable really for two to three of us, hmm. two full-timers and one part-timer. Hmm. And we cranked, hmm. we did a great job. We had uh, some really talented kids came through there in a short period of time in two years. And um, we, I think we made some noise, even though it was just a 42-seat restaurant. And um, I like to think that that was, that was, that was, that was a good time. Yeah. Because we, we could manage it. Nobody was telling us what we could do. Max is probably one of the most passionate people you're ever going to meet. And also one of the most educated and smartest food people you're ever going to meet. Mm. But he did not pretend to understand the nexus of how to actually execute that food out of a restaurant. And that's what he entrusted to me. Hmm. Our relationship has been wonderful ever since, incidentally. That's a really important role for an owner to have that's not a chef. To, to bring that humility to a standpoint and understand a relationship, something that is about as rare as hen's teeth. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's hard to be humble when you approach a business and you may have found success in other walks of business, mm-hmm. i.e. an accountant or a lawyer. <laughs> and then you get into the restaurant business, and I always say that will shred anybody yeah. in, 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 a, in, a, in a, uh, a blink of an eye. It's a hard industry. And if you don't understand it on that gut level in a lot of ways that we've already discussed, it's very difficult to succeed. And people try to commoditize it or digitize it, and it can't. Some people just happen to naturally struggle with the soft, um, I say it's like comparing digital to analog Mm. music. Some people just can't (laughs) wrap their heads around a record. A needle scraping across grooves (laughs) and making funky-ass sounds some people can embrace the beauty and just celebrate it and can slowly, totally thrive in that environment. And some people can't help but fuck their faces up when they hear it. Yeah. And the restaurant business is just like that. Yeah. You try to come in and you're graded a lawyer as an accountant and you come in and start messing with perishable product and feeding people. Hmm. Really, a business that's very rare in that our commodity, our product that we put out there, we take money from people and they put it in their mouth. <laughs> 
it, 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 it completely they, they yeah. devastates them. All right. If you if you don't understand it on that level. Yeah. You can you can get by, but it's very difficult to survive and thrive. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so anyway, uh, Max, he could do those things, very much so. But he knew, I believe he knew. Um, that in order to set the stage to succeed with wine and cigars, that the food needed to be of a certain type that I just happened to have been uh, mm. recently trained in and inspired in down in New York City. Mm. And we had uh, a wonderful two-year run that really, um, you know, I think that restaurant in that area, we both benefited from it. Yeah. A- after that, um, I went to, uh, I wound up getting a job at the Century Club, which was funny because... Uh, the Century Club is about as uncool of a job as you could have gotten at the time. Okay. The, yeah. the joke was, is, you know, the Century Club was a place where old men took their fathers for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I didn't understand when I first approached by the Century Club as to why I would even want that job. I remember joking around uh, with some friends at the time. It's like, I'm just going to go in the interview and ask for all this stuff and see what <laughs> happens. And um, before I, 10 minutes into the interview, they had already offered all of that stuff. And I was had my mind blown by the history of the place yeah. and realized that there was much, something much larger there for me mm-hmm. and for the members of the Century Club that we both enjoyed for the next ten years. Hmm. It's rare for a it's rare for a chef to have that much time at one place, isn't it? These days, it seems to be. Yeah. I mean, I I, I grew up and the the, the Jacques Pepin had a quote. Um, that you really you should be trained, get the basics into you, and then you should go work for a chef for at least a year. Mm-hmm. And you should set aside everything that you've learned previously up to that point, and you should just embrace and celebrate whatever that chef is that's teaching you for that one year. And then you move on to the next chef for another year. But you would never bounce someplace for two months and then go. Yeah. Nobody, you know, a year stint was very agreeable to most people. You could get through a season. Um, it was fair exchange for whatever you may be learning at that time for that particular operator. And it's something that you could depend on. Mm-hmm. You know, there was, a, there was a, a, a sustainable turnover. But now people bounce. And I've seen guys will come out of culinary school. They will rack up credit card debt, go work all over Europe and Japan and everywhere else, and then mm-hmm. come back and then open a restaurant at the age of 26. Yeah. And they, granted, they've seen tons of things. And there's great techniques and stuff. But I think there's a, there's 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 amount of perspective that you need, not just a singular perspective, but a perspective over an arc of time that you need to imbue and be taught to understand what it truly means to feed people within different environments. Yeah. Again, I'm resonating back to what we do is feed people. Right. Um, and you've seen those type of people struggle before, and I think it's largely due to those reasons. It takes time to understand these things. Yeah. The cent- when you're when you're going to the Century Club, and I know we're talking about like. You go in there saying that you you're gonna get all these things, and you know within the first ten minutes you get them. Yep, crazy. How yep. does how does that work in your mindset change from when you're working with Max, when you're coming from New York, and then going to the Century Club? It was uh, well, again, you know, you're coming back from this this aspect or this perspective of you know it's about you know. You, you get this sense when you're cooking cool food and you think you're doing a great job and you know, all of a sudden you show up in magazine or at that time, again, it was newspaper. Yeah. And if you're in the newspaper, then you were like, you know, hot shit. Yeah. And so, you know, a, a, a young man and being thinking that he's hot shit in the nineties is not necessarily good for my ego. Right. Luckily I've always had really well-intentioned people smack my ass down when it needed to happen. <laughs> and, uh, um, I've always been kept right size by a lot of folks, including my own hand yeah. as well. 
And um, so when I got to the Century Club, I didn't understand what it was. I didn't understand the whole notion of a club and why would somebody come here and pay this money to go walk into a building when there aren't any other amenities? Yeah. There wasn't a pool table or squash courts or anything. It wasn't a golf course. Right. There was like, why would people pay just to walk in the door? And I realized that there was a, there was a tremendous amount of value there that somebody from my perspective or background may not immediately recognize. Hmm. Um, so there was a social piece, obviously. Yeah. And um, there was also some probably some business things. Um, and then there's also this general... Uh, um, good naturedness and 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 just camaraderie that people would enjoy there yeah in this wonderfully historic place but the funny thing i realized and this is the first thing i realized as a chef it, it, the century club was probably the most, single most important thing that happened to me uh for that 10-year period um because that i say feeding people i really understood what that meant at the century club hmm. in a restaurant when you get a ticket a ticket shows up and it says table number five right and then you might have some red ink down there that has some modifiers in there, you know, gluten-free, whatever, <laughs> vegetable wonderama. And, uh, but you get the table out and away it goes. When I saw the first ticket come in the kitchen at the Century Club, it had Mr. and Mrs. Jones hmm. with Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And Mr. Jones uh, had a heart attack two years ago. And if you work at the Century Club, you probably ought to know that. So if you cook the vegetables, please use olive oil, not butter. And then Mrs. Joan, of course, is allergic to everything under the sun and she doesn't like her food touching on a plate. And then Mr. Smith, so forth and so on. Hmm. When a ticket came into the kitchen, I realized that the days of cooking and anonymity were gone. Hmm. And it wasn't just somebody in the kitchen that was feeding them. That was Eamon Lee back there. So they knew me and hence I knew them. And that's Hmm. when this entire thing of it's not about me at all and the pretty food that I put on a plate. It's my ability to understand who you are Mm. and how best to feed you and what it takes to make you happy may not be the first thing that comes to my mind. Mm. Listen, you got two ears and one mouth. Play the odds, man, all right? Listen to your customers and get to understand them and understand how you can hone your craft, direct it to make those people happy. And at the Century Club, it wasn't optional. Yeah. And you couldn't hide, so you needed to do it. And it was really, it developed muscles that as a chef hadn't been developed in me before, you know? And, and it made me, I realized it really made me understand and develop me as a hospitality person. And it was really, it was cool. Some challenges really were horrible yeah. and, and, and very difficult to meet sometimes. But um, I became a better chef because of it. And probably more importantly, a better hospitality person because of it. You know, you're saying that, and I'm thinking, what can I connect that to in my experiences? And it's at Defi. My fiance Rebecca doesn't have an adventurous palate. I'll put it that way. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, and not that I purposefully seek out things that are uncommon in food, but I'm willing to try anything, especially if I have uh, someone that I know is talented and knows food making it for me. I'm game. And there's, so, there's, there's trust there. Exactly. That they're going to be able to feed you. Right. Yeah. So going to Defi, Rebecca, and I've been once or twice before, and I've done the four-course you know, tasting by myself. Purposefully, actually, I went by myself and didn't bring Rebecca. <laughs> I told her one time, I said, Thursday night, do you have anything going on? And she said, no. I said, good, you're staying home, and I'm going to Defi for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But when we went together... And we did the, we did the four course tasting and Cody comes out and asks these questions and 
you know, it's amazing. He's taking this information and he goes back and him and Nick are preparing this food that is the exact same for Rebecca and I. It's the exact same food each course with the exception of mine had pig's blood and the venison, hers didn't. Sure. And mine had the sea urchin roe and hers didn't. Yeah. You know, and it's that kind of, it's that getting to know your guests before you prepare food for them. And not fighting them. Right. And, 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 it's, and it's difficult, you know, again, operationally, if we, if we set ourselves up and say, I hope no vegetarians walk into my restaurant tonight, that's setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. Probably the smarter thing would be to do, make sure you have vegetables on the menu, or better yet, take your menu and then make it easy for the vegetarian, gluten-free, keto person that's, if, that is inevitably going to walk into your restaurant yeah. and make it easy for them to identify the food that will suit their needs ahead of time. Yeah. If we do that, it's certainly going to be more of an engaging and welcoming and hospitality-based type of experience. Hmm. And it's, um, but, you know, restaurant business is hard and yeah. it's, you're busy and it's easy to get distracted. Hmm. The funny, I think the, probably the most important thing to bring to that attitude, we didn't touch on it, but it was the most important thing I probably re- learned at Paul Smith's College. And it was actually on the first day of class. Yeah. Paul Smith's College is a very heady place, and uh, the Adirondacks, of course, are. And uh, you had to take, it was an AAS, so you had to take mm-hmm. other courses like English and sociology. And uh, Sonny Wee, who was a, uh, I think it was a priest or a monk up there, taught the sociology course. And he, he, was, he was this Asian dude who was good 100 pounds overweight. He literally looked like Buddha. And <laughs> he walked into the, the room, and here we are, a bunch of hippies and, and Paul Smith's <laughs> deadheads in the late 80s, wannabe chefs. And he just picks up a piece of chalk, doesn't say anything, and just writes this Latin phrase on the, on the chalkboard. And the Latin phrase is, de gustibus non es disputanum. And he spends the next 45 minutes breaking it down. De gustibus, or one's gusto, what one derives from life, what is fun and, and passionate, right? Non es, literally, is not, mm. right? And then disputanum, disputable how I find gusto and joy and, 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 and just love in life. You, I can't tell you what that can be. And you can't tell me what that can be in simpler terms. There's no accounting for taste. Yeah. And he said, until we embrace this theory, this, this way of life, this, this, this way of approaching really a spiritual way of looking at life. Yeah. This is the, this is your touchstone for hospitality and success in this business. Hmm. It was the most brilliant thing I've ever seen in my life. And to this day, if we take that, there's no accounting for taste. I can't tell you what's wonderful or delicious or good. I need to understand who you are and what that is that you believe it is. Then I can hone my craft to you. That's where I probably almost guarantee success. Yeah. But it takes listening, humility, the ability to understand or struggle to try to understand somebody else, something our world would probably use a little more of these days. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it does take that, but the rewards are endless if we can. Yeah. What is, if you had to pick one thing, one dinner, let's say, or it could be lunch, but let's say one dish you're going to make for the rest of your life. What is it? Mm. Pr- that's 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 virtually impossible to answer. <laughs> uh, there are there are dishes that I've had. There's things that have always resonated with me. Um, the way the way we cooked a chicken breast, a, 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 an airline chicken breast, you know, yeah. with the wing joint still on it, at at at, uh, at Oriole has always burned its way into me, and that could be <laughs> the perfect canvas for just about anything. So really, just a chicken breast, a good chicken um, that is uh, is 
basically seared meat side down, it's skin on, and then turns skin side down in a really hot pan, and the whole mess is thrown in the oven. So mm-hmm. the, skin, the skin gets ridiculously crispy on one side, and you get caramelization and all these wonderful things. And then serving that with just seasonal vegetables, whatever happens to be growing at the time, mm-hmm. using the law, if it grows together, it goes together. Um, with some fresh herbs, a, a decent little pad of, of good butter and a nice, you know, well-formed and nice stock all tossed together and then kind of come back to Mary on the plate to me. I could eat that seven nights a week. Yeah. For okay. sure. That sounds amazing, actually. I think it, <laughs> Not much to it, you know. It's, it's like doing less. Daniel yeah. Baloud used to say the best dish you put in, the best item in a dish is the one you choose to leave out. Hmm. Don't, don't cloud it up. Yeah. What's... Um, if there's not... I mean, with the exception of what you just said, if you don't have much in the house... Mm. what's your go-to uh that's a good question um if there's not much in the house <laughs> there's there's two things i'll do so my my closest rendition of a fuku chicken sandwich from david chang because <laughs> i will there are guilty pleasures that i have and, and one of them is just a fried chicken sandwich with sam sauce and spicy pickles yeah. on a nutritiously worthless bun um <laughs> i i will never apologize for that sandwich <laughs> And uh, I usually have all of the, I have Martin's rolls in the freezer usually and those chicken breasts in the freezer. <laughs> it's not healthy, but it's probably the, the one thing I'll go to. I can get any time at my house that I want. Okay. Otherwise, it's, uh, usually, um, it's usually pasta or something along those lines. Yeah. We'll, we will bank pasta sometimes. We'll make it and then we'll bank it. Okay. So like cavatelli or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll destroy my kitchen just for a batch and then freeze it and we'll go back to that and usually just toss it with a decent sauce. Yeah. She's going to kill me right now for saying this, but for the last month, because <laughs> I was doing keto and then I stopped for the last, don't worry about how long, but uh, <laughs> my go-to for the last month has been Sunday nights. We make the stir fry at the house, just white rice with vegetables and some oyster sauce, but I make way too much rice and then at least twice for the next week. It's just that Reheat, leftover and, go. and yeah. then fry it. Yeah, you know, just throw it in the skillet. Oh, my God. Delicious. Yeah. I, I, I was neglected to say we usually have those little cans of Thai curry base yeah. and coconut milk and jasmine rice, mm-hmm. and then we can usually hack out anything yeah. like that. And I can as, as long as it takes to cook jasmine rice stovetop, yeah. I can have dinner ready in two seconds. Yeah. And a lot of the – and it's, it's, it's always, you know what, delicious. Right. Always. Yeah. Yeah, so. My go-to favorite thing has been oyster sauce. Really? I don't know why. It just has. I, 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 there's great, no counting. I yeah. can't tell you that that's not right. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> One person you can have dinner with throughout history, living or dead. Who would it be? Who would it be? Oh, that's a good question. Anthony Bourdain. But Anthony Bourdain on a good day, not on a dark day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's right now. If you ask me tomorrow, the answer could be different probably. Yeah. Um. Anthony Bourdain's brain was so active and so busy and, and he saw so much. And yet we all know now that his soul was somewhat tortured. Um, he had demons and he had um, challenges in his life. I think having challenges in life and having a lot of resistance and things, especially if it's at your own hand, um, really exposes your heart. And I think it, it, it enables you to identify layers of feeding and cooking and, and, and culture that otherwise may gone, go unnoticed. His, I still watch his episodes and I'm almost moved to tears in some of those episodes mm-hmm. because it's not that it's Anthony Bourdain really saying it. It's his ability to communicate what he's seen mm-hmm. that so many people will look at throughout the day and never see what he sees. 
I would just, I wish I had a chance to um, meet him. It's funny. I'm friends with his um, <laughs> Beth Oretsky on Instagram, mm. who was the grill bitch mm-hmm. from yeah. uh, uh, Kitchen Confidential. <laughs> and I always say like, you know what? I wish I just someday I'd just like to break bread with those guys. But yeah. uh, Anthony Bourdain would have been that person. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking time today. Oh, man, the pleasure's mine. I, I obviously, I like talking about this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And it's um, thank you for providing an, an opportunity um, and a platform for people to discuss these things, to go back on those conversations, much like we just talked, Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. The one, probably the best thing is people captured those messages and were able to go back because what, what you've seen and what I've seen through our lives will continue to offer different perspectives depending on when they're listened to or seen mm-hmm. again, as life goes on. Yeah. Um, uh, very smart people have said before that there's no such thing as a view from nowhere. Mm-hmm. And, um, if we can just shut up for two seconds and listen to what somebody else's perspective, perhaps it can enrich and, 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 uh, uh, make our lives just that much more enjoyable. Yeah. If we just appreciate their vision and see, mm-hmm. huh, I didn't, I didn't see that before. Thank you for telling me that. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, there it is, folks. That's all we have for you this week. I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Eamon as much as I had fun sitting down and talking to him. If you don't already, make sure that you follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at EatLocalCMY. And head over to EatLocalCMY.com where you can purchase your Eat Local CMY card. See a list of all the participating restaurants in the Eat Local CMY card. Find some fun, interesting videos and even listen to this podcast. Until next week, thank you so much for checking out the Eat Local CMY podcast.